All right, everybody. Well, we'll go ahead and get started. It's 4.01, so we'll go ahead and get started uh, for today. Thank you guys so much for coming back. Excited for us to have another uh, Sunday afternoon to dive into this evangelism training. And today we're talking about the motivation and discipline of evangelism. We'll focus less on the discipline, more on the motivation. We'll get more into some other disciplines in the coming weeks, but I just want to at least introduce it for today. And just a reminder, so I don't pull an Ed Litton, by the way, uh, is this book is being, being like, you could say, like my textbook for walking through this. Now, we could literally spend, I mean, there's about 30 chapters. We could spend probably 30 weeks going through this. And I'm just picking from some of the best spots and um, there's some really great content in here. And, and actually, it's kind of funny. Part of the content that I'm covering today um, is actually, which I, when I was planning this whole series out back in after our staff retreat, was um, back in, I guess, October. Um, it's funny that I, I, part of my session is going to cover 2 Corinthians 5, which that's what Lewis preached today. We didn't plan that. So maybe the Lord wants us to hear it twice. It's important. So, um, but excited for us to dive into this today. And we're going to be all over the New Testament, so uh, just make sure you have your Bibles ready. And uh, so let me open us up in a word of prayer, and we'll go ahead and get started. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time together. And we pray that uh, this excellent resource and this, this time that we can have together to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ, uh, we pray that this would be a, an effective time, uh, not effective in the pragmatic, pragmatic sense, but effective in that we um, hear what your word has to say, word has to, say to us. And we choose to live it out, uh, knowing that your word, it doesn't return unto us void. And so we pray that we would hear what it has to say and we will go and do what it says, working with the energy that you powerfully work within us uh, by your Holy Spirit. We love you and we pray this in your name. Amen. All right. So, speaking of the Holy Spirit, all right, the third person of the Trinity, we're going to be focusing on uh, him to start for our uh, first portion here. Uh, so you notice in your notes right at the top, we're going to be focusing on what our first motivator is, the helper, the Holy Spirit. Now, um, I, just, I do want to say this. Remember when we are discussing the motivation and discipline of evangelism, that we must first speak to the role of God, that God has in us. God is the initiator. He's the pursuer. Men, uh, mankind, we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. We could not make ourselves alive. So we recognize that the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts. And we're going to talk about that today as well and His role in evangelism. So um, it's, it's real important, even as I think about the title of this session, motivation and discipline to do evangelism. This sounds very, we could, might even say man-centered, like the things that I should do. And now that we are believers in Christ and we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, we should be motivated and disciplined, but we must remember uh, it is essential, the role of the Holy Spirit in evangelism. So let's go to step number one, okay? Number one, the Holy Spirit guides the witness. The Holy Spirit guides the witness, um, and, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 8 for that. So you could turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. The Holy Spirit guides the witness. Now, we're going to see in this passage in Acts chapter 8 the way the Holy Spirit guides Philip. So let's look at um, Acts chapter 8, verse 4 through 8, and then 26 through 40. We'll focus on those two uh, sections in particular. And before we read that, before someone reads Acts 8, 4 through 8, I'll have someone read that. I do want to say that if you look at this text, God brought about this divine appointment where it was crystal clear that Philip was guided by the Spirit of God. He was guided by the Spirit of God. Now, someone read for me verses 4 through 8. Many who had unclean spirits who were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice. 
So we see really clearly what is Philip doing? He's going about proclaiming the gospel. By the way, Philip's a deacon here. He's a deacon. So he's, he's not a pastor. He's not an apostle. He's a deacon here. So he's going about, uh, going about and he's proclaiming the gospel here. This is that Philip, the one who was just chosen as a deacon. After Stephen, the other deacon was stoned. And then we go down to verse 26. So someone read verse 26 to 40. I know it's a longer section, but someone with a loud voice so everyone can hear. Verse 26 to 40 of chapter 8. That's right. See, we look at this passage. It's an excellent passage, um, really, of being guided by the Holy Spirit to share the gospel with someone. We see really clearly the Holy Spirit tells Philip, go and share the gospel. And notice the question that he asks. Do you understand what you're reading? You know, we might come across people uh, occasionally who might be reading a Bible, or someone might have a Gideon New Testament. I remember when I was standing outside James Madison Middle School in Titusville, Florida, these old men would hand out these little Gideon New Testaments. And um, those little kind of things are, are neat evangelistic opportunities for people. But he asked this question, do you understand what you are reading? And then notice what he says, how can I unless someone guides me? And the Holy Spirit uses people to guide people into the truth. And that's really clear here. The Holy Spirit guides the witness. Uh, we see, but notice what was preparing Philip's heart before that moment, what we already read in verse 4 to 8. He was already intentionally proclaiming the gospel. He was already intentionally evangelizing. So just imagine with me, if he wasn't in that habit of obedience, would he have been prepared to share later? I mean, we're all, I'm speaking speculatively, of course, but nevertheless, if I'm regularly intentionally sharing the gospel, there's going to be those moments that are clear divine appointments that God's going to bring across your path that are undeniable, that are going to be the kind of things that you tell your kids about or you tell your church about that are just amazing. And this is one of those in Philip's life, a divine appointment with someone who's in high standing in an Ethiopian court. It's pretty amazing. 
this divine appointment. So we got to take advantage of those when they come. I know, of, uh, I think I've shared the story before. Forgive me if I've repeated it. Maybe I've only said it to the youth. But um, I remember when I used to work at Southwestern, the president's office, he had this plaque from the president of Zambia. I think it was Zambia. And um, the president of Zambia was a Christian. Now, um, he wasn't, hadn't always been a Christian. Of course, not everyone's always a Christian, but you get what I mean. He, uh, he grew up and kind of just lit how he was. He was a president. Well, this IMB missionary um, was just convicted that the president of Zambia needed to hear the gospel. He's a national there, and he was like, I just got to do it. And so he, he just couldn't get off his mind as he kept praying for the president. So he goes to the gate of the president's palace in the capital city, and he tells the security guards while he's there, and they laugh at him. Because he says, I want to share the gospel about Jesus Christ with the president. They laugh at him and they say, well, let's see if the president will actually have him in. Like, as like a joke. And then the president, they actually phone the president and, they, and he said, yeah, bring him in. <laughs> so they're like kind of bewildered. Like, wait a second, this missionary is, okay, we'll let him in. So they check him, make sure he didn't have anything. And then he goes in and he sits down with the president for a couple hours, shares the gospel, and the president of Zambia is saved. Real story. None of it's embellished. So what happens next is um, he wants to be baptized. And so when he says to the, uh, he says to the guy, uh, well, let's be baptized in your church. Well, I kind of live out in the country. We baptize people in a goat trough. And he's like, well, I want to be baptized in your church. So he's like, okay. So the president and his entourage all come out to his little village out in Zambia, and they baptize this six-foot-six president of Zambia at the time in a goat trough. And it's a pretty amazing story from this missionary, and this plaque was uh, kind of representing that as Dr. Patterson had had a relationship with that president. But it's an amazing story of just a divine appointment and a God opportunity there. And that's what, that's what took place. It's pretty amazing. You never know those kind of opportunities you might have as well. So point number two. Point number two, the Holy Spirit empowers the witness. Now, I left one of the verses there because it's one we read the other day, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, someone could read that for us, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And then we have another passage we're going to look at in the book of Acts as well. Who wants to read that for us? Just as a reminder. Hmm. So he empowers the apostles, he empowers witnesses to go throughout the earth to share the gospel. And then if you go to Acts chapter 4, I want to look at a prayer of the early church. A prayer of the early church in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. And notice how the early church prayed for God to work in their midst. Who would like to read Acts chapter 4, 23 through 31? Jesus. 
And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So, so what do you notice about this text? The two, what, what, are, what are the things that, what, what do they ask for, and what does it demonstrate that they do? Or they have? What do they ask for, and what does it demonstrate that they have? You guys see it? Boldness. boldness. They pray to God for boldness. They already know there's plenty of opportunity before them. They don't ask God for opportunities. They know the opportunities are there. You know, a lot of times we don't necessarily need to ask God for opportunities. I remember one time I was part of an evangelism team at Word of Life, and I had to take a group of people downtown to Tampa, and we're in downtown. There's people everywhere, everywhere. And you know what the people on my team decided to do? I'm 18 years old. I'm still learning how to lead this thing. But it was like hindsight 2020. I was like, I, I should have done something here. But what do they do? All the people are like, hey, let's, let's pray God gives us an opportunity. While we're all standing out there and there's people everywhere walking around us. And I'm like, God, I, like, I'm thinking hindsight. If I could go back in time, like take a DeLorean, you know, you know, back to the future and be like, hey, guys, they're everywhere. Let's go. And then get back in the car and leave. Um, but then I'd be like, wow, uh, that old me doesn't have hair. That's what I would think at the time. Um, anyway, you know, looking at this, it's so sad that so many times Christians have this idea that it's like everything's just going to kind of fall into place. You know, I read the book of Acts, and sometimes it feels like that with Philip, right? Well, a lot of times opportunities are right in front of us, but we just have to be bold to take them. And that's what the early church prayed for. Even in the midst of persecution, they prayed for boldness, and what did they have? The whole, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, so they continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. And we as believers, according to Ephesians 5, are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that, that means to take in God's Word and to be filled with God's Word, to walk in the light as He is in the light. So I want to encourage us toward that. The Holy Spirit empowers the witness. Now, let's go to number three. The Holy Spirit convicts the unbeliever. The Holy Spirit convicts the unbeliever. And if I could have someone read for me from John chapter 16, 8 through 11. John 16, 8 through 11. The Holy Spirit convicts the unbeliever. First person to get it. Go ahead and read. So we see the purpose of the Holy Spirit in coming, to convict, convict the world. And who's that talking about? It's talking about unbelievers, and in specifically three ways, sin, righteousness, and judgment. And Jesus goes on to explain what each of those things mean. The Holy Spirit convicts the unbeliever. And that, so the conviction and the convincing happens only by the power of the Holy Spirit, who he is the one who does that work in and through the proclaimed word. So just as we cannot convict or convince anyone, we also cannot convert anyone, which leads us to my next point here. Uh, the Holy Spirit regenerates the unbeliever. The Holy Spirit regenerates the unbeliever. Not me, not you, the Holy Spirit. And this comes from John chapter 3, 5 to 7. So just a few more chapters back. Someone go ahead and read that. John chapter 3, 5 through 7. So we look at this passage, 
and, and recognize that the Spirit of God must awaken or, or cause the unbeliever to be born again. And another cross-reference passage, if you want to write this down, is Titus chapter 3, verse 5, that uses the word regeneration, 3, 5 through 7. It says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, there's the word, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We recognize that the Holy Spirit has a crucial role in regenerating the unbeliever, and the, the only role in regenerating the unbeliever. We are just mere vessels for God to use to proclaim that message, and because since we believe the Word of God is God-breathed, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so therefore when we speak the Word of God, the Holy Spirit is working through that Word that He is sending forth from our lips. How can they hear unless the preacher is sent, right? So we have to recognize the role of the Holy Spirit even in the proclamation of the gospel. So we looked at our first motivator, that is the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. But next, I want to look at metaphors of gospel proclamation to stir us on to this task. So metaphor number one, you're going to notice I put the scripture references there. So if you guys want to, any of you want to jump ahead and be like, when I say first one to read it, you got it, then we'll be able to go through these quickly, okay? So metaphor number one is this announcing the deeds of God, announcing the deeds of God. Let's look at how 1 Peter lays this out. Someone read for me 1 Peter chapter 2, 4 through 5, and then 9 through 10. So we look at this passage and we see how God has designated his people and what he calls them, like living stones building up a spiritual house, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? There's the that. You see the comma, that. There's the, the purpose clause or statement there, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We announce the deeds of God. We announce what God has done. This is what the Lord has done. Repent, believe, trust in Christ. That is uh, a great metaphor. We're, we're people who announce the deeds of God. But another metaphor is, is the sowing of seed. Sowing seed. You can just put that there. Metaphor number two, sowing seed. In Mark chapter 4, 1 to 9. Someone go ahead and read that. Hmm. 
So this is a powerful parable. I mean, we could spend the rest of the time on this parable. It's just so, it's so good. And I encourage you to read, read past this beyond where Jesus goes in the rest of this context here at another time. So take note to do that. But this is a very powerful metaphor of, you know, when you're sowing the seed of the gospel, you're the one casting the seed out. But it lands in different places. And those different places where it might land, you know, give explanation as to why it might grow the way it is. You know, I, I, there's been many times I've shared the gospel with someone and been so discouraged to see them very quickly turn away from the faith. One, one young man named Ruben I worked with at El Phoenix when I was in Fort Worth, a Mexican restaurant. For years I shared the gospel with him, and one night he calls me weeping, saying he wants to trust Christ. I walk him through how to do that on the phone. He trusts Christ. A week later, he's already denouncing the faith. And it was just super sad to see that. Um, and it was, I mean, he, there was an atheist at work that he kind of teamed up with to kind of come at me, and I'm like, this is just so lame and discouraging. But oh well, and uh, the Lord is sovereign, you know. And so I was bold for many years to share the gospel with them. Didn't work out. I have many other instances like that I can share that are just discouraging. But God is faithful, and all that He calls us to do is to water seeds and to plant them. He brings forth the growth. Okay. And so, while discouragement might come from something like that, resting in the sovereignty of God and knowing that He's the one at work allows for that discouragement to be dispelled quickly. And I can attest to that personally. Um, so, metaphor number three. Metaphor number three, reaping a harvest. We talked about this a bit last week, but I, I think it's a helpful image, and we want, want to be reminded of this powerful metaphor in Scripture. So someone read that passage for us, Matthew 9, 37 to 38. Absolutely. So, so we recognize the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. And as I'm going through these metaphors, I was going to say this to the end, but I'll go ahead and say it now. As we're going through these metaphors, maybe some of these metaphors might ring for you a little bit of like, wow, this, this really helps me think about how I should share the gospel. Maybe um, you grew up on a farm and you, you can almost picture the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few because it's just me and grandpa out there harvesting the land, right? <laughs> maybe that's you. I'm not sure. But Nevertheless, you can get that imagery really well in your mind. Maybe this next one, if you're a fisherman, uh, metaphor number four, fishing for people. If you love to go fishing, you might have in mind, oh, you know, I need to be doing this regularly, fishing for men. Matthew chapter 4, 18 to 20. Someone read this. One of the encouraging things about that passage is Jesus meets them where they are, uses an illustration and a metaphor. You know, yeah, you're fishing, you're fishing for these fish, but you know, they, I'll make you fishers of men if you come and follow me. And, and that was a powerful picture for them because of what they were doing. And using that metaphor, I remember one time hearing a, a story, I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but of a, of a man from Word of Life, he was sharing the gospel with a, a bread delivery driver, and, and the guy was frustrated about the delivery, and and uh, he had made some comment, I don't even remember what it was, but he somehow was able to work that transition to share the gospel, talking about Christ being the bread of life. And I think the guy had made a, com a negative comment about his own life. And so he tried to, he tried to tie the gospel in that way, because you could see the guy was in a bit despair, and he was frustrated, and he shared the gospel. Using that, and he used that metaphor, you know, using that metaphor. So you, one of these metaphors might ring true for you, if, especially if you're a fisherman, after that last one, being a fisher of men. Metaphor number five. This last one, if maybe you've um, been a witness in court or you've been on jury duty and you've been in court and you've seen this, but bearing witness, bearing witness. 
Okay, and we have some verses here, um, and note, we might recall to mind as we read these verses, Acts 1.8, where he says he's going to empower believers to be witnesses all around the world. So someone read 1 John 1, uh, 1-4. So we see a really clear and powerful metaphor right there in, in John saying, I, I saw, I heard, I witnessed, I touched, I saw the word of life, Christ. And he's, he's saying, I'm, I testify to these things. That's what a witness does, they testify. And then Acts chapter 5, 29 to 32, someone read that. Right, so he lays out that he clearly cannot obey these men who are telling him not to preach the gospel, that he must obey God, but why? What's the basis? Because he was a witness. He saw these things, and so he must share the gospel. He must proclaim repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and so that's what he did. He bore witness to those things. And then metaphor number six, creating thirst. Creating thirst. Someone read Colossians 4, 5 to 6, and then someone Matthew 5, 13. Matthew 5.13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost it, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So it uses that language of saltiness in both of them, and salt is a preservative, but salt also creates thirst, and so it, it makes someone curious as to as to the gospel. Because truthfully, everyone is thirsting, they're, they're seeking to be satisfied, and if we can be people who create thirst by being the salt of the earth, that we, by our lives, show that, man, I want what they have. I want what they have. If people could say that, not in the sense of coveting, but like, why is that person so happy or joyful, yet they're going through so much? How can they do that? Well, and so our, our faith, our actions can testify to others, and so we hope to create thirst in that way as well. Um, Metaphor number seven, holding light, holding light. And someone go ahead and read Philippians 2, 15 to 16, and then Matthew 5, 14 to 16. You can go ahead and read them back to back. Philippians 2, 15 to 16. So holding, holding forth the word of life, shining as lights in the world, right? That's what, they, that's what they do. That's what believers do. And then Matthew. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, 
so we think of that one. Um, you know, when, when, when he says you are the light of the world, you've got to think about that for a moment. The world is a dark place. It's a dark place. And, and, and maybe some of you have been on mission trips in places, maybe India, or when you went to Canada, when you went to Vancouver and Victoria, or Utah even, and went in one of the temples there. Oh, actually, we couldn't go in a temple. We went in something, though. We went, went to the museum. The library, yeah, that's right. And so we could go in these places, and we're like, if you guys have been on those things, you're like, this kind of really feels like a dark place, you know? And I remember walking outside the temple in Logan, that we can't go in because we're not Mormons, but even just this eerie feeling about it, you know, just like, ugh, you know? I remember we, um, Lewis and Jimmy and I, when we were in Hebron, Israel, we went into a mosque there, and it was just, you know, you get this darkness kind of feeling about you. And we all know why, right? Because as we understand from Scripture, behind false ideologies, there is, there is a sense of spiritual warfare and demonic warfare there, and there's a sense of darkness about it. And so we understand that when we are bearers of the gospel, bearing witness to the gospel, we are holding forth light. We are the light of the world. And so we should be confident uh, doing, doing that as well. And um, we would hope that these passages of Scripture will motivate us as we see that metaphor. We're holding forth the light. Uh, and I actually remember, um, I don't know if you guys have ever been to Kentucky, uh, I, uh, wait, many of us have on the trip, but um, in a specific place in Kentucky, Mammoth Cave, I think it's the largest cave in the world, if I'm not mistaken, um, maybe in North America, but in that cave, one time we went real deep into the cave, and the tour guide got us all in this big circle, and then he turned out the, the big light he had, and all the lights they had around the cavern, and it was, you couldn't see anything in front of your face, it was really scary, but I just was really grateful when they turned that light back on, I was like, all right, we still got power, that's good. Um, and you got to think, for a lost person, remember when you were lost, you didn't have Christ. And when you saw and understood the gospel, what that did to you, how that changed you, you went from darkness to light. And so I think this analogy, this metaphor is really helpful for us as believers to be reminded of what we're doing. Okay, this is a motivator. So uh, metaphor number eight, liberating the captive. Liberating the captive. This is another really powerful picture out of the gospel of John. Someone read that, John 8, 31 to 32. One of the most popular verses in the Gospel of John, for sure, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's obviously implying that you are enslaved by lies. And so the truth sets free. It liberates the captive. We see that that's even a prophecy about Christ uh, mentioned elsewhere in the Gospels, where he liberates those imprisoned in, in captivity, and is talking about those who are in spiritual captivity. Metaphor number nine, a radiating fragrance. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, 14 through 16. Someone read that? Radiating fragrance. So we see that passage, and we see this powerful picture. Um, if you don't know what a triumphal procession is, in Roman times, when someone would come back from war, uh, they would have the general and the soldiers at the front of the army, and they'd be coming in celebrating, maybe often the general riding on a white horse, which is a symbol of victory, which explains, right, Revelation 19, Jesus coming down from heaven on a white horse. Well, he, they, This general would ride in town, and they would have this strong incense burning, and you could smell it before they even got to the city, because they had so much of it, and this fragrance for those who won the battle, was one of life. But even in that um, triumphal procession, there would be captives behind, and they would end up being enslaved in the Roman Empire. And so this was a very 
that, that for them was a fragrance of death. It was a fragrance of them becoming slaves. But for the, those who won, it was a fragrance of life. In other words, victory, we can still continue on. And so we see that in the same sense of, well, Christ is leading us in triumphal procession. Those who choose to follow Christ, that's a great fragrance. Those who deny Christ and hate Christ, it's one of death. They don't want anything to do with Christ. And it's a similar picture he's trying to give here. It's a radiating fragrance. And so some people you encounter are going to want to smell that fragrance, and they're going to want to know why it smells good, and, and they're, they're going to be attracted to Christ in you. But there's going to be some who smell that fragrance, and they can't stand you, and they're going to hate you. But remember, as Christ said, it's not you they hate, it's Christ in you that they hate. So that fragrance can be powerful. So, which leads us to our next point here, our next point, um, reconciling. This is another metaphor of reconciling. To reconcile means to change thoroughly, to change thoroughly. So this metaphor of reconciling, we see that we saw this in our text this morning, but someone go ahead and read it for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. So we've been given this message that changes thoroughly the status of people, their status of enemy to now friend of God. And then metaphor number 11, we serve as Christ's representative. You know, you'll notice the other verse there, Cameron, if you're still there, 2 Corinthians, you still there? Go ahead and read 520, and then someone read Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. Right, so an ambassador, they represent Christ. And then go on to, someone read Ephesians 6, 19 to 20. And also for me, the word may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. Hmm. An ambassador in chains to declare boldly as I ought to speak. An ambassador understands the weight of the task before him to represent the policies of the land from which he came from. And so this one... An ambassador, this ambassador for Christ, represents everything Christ represents. And that's what we're called to be as a powerful metaphor once again. Maybe if you've, the closest thing that I can think of this is maybe if you've had to represent an organization, maybe for your job, you have to go to a conference or you go to meet with other people and you're representing your job, where you're from. Uh, or maybe you're in the military and you're in a foreign country and you're representing the United States by how you served in the military. Those are just other examples. We can think of a lot of examples. Um, but just as we think of even going on mission trips, right? We brought that up. We're Christ representative wherever we're going, even down the street. And then the last metaphor here is a delivery person. A delivery person. You may not think of it in that sense um, right away, like, you know, a delivery person. You mean like DoorDash? Like, no, they're just bringing you food, right? No, but a delivery person. Think of, what, think of this text. Someone read, go ahead, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, and notice the language here that Paul uses. So we see really clearly in this passage, he says that he delivers. He is delivering something, but it's something that he received. He was given this, and he said, this is a first importance. So I'm going to take what I've been given, and I'm going to take it to where it belongs and where it must go out of obedience, right? So if a pizza truck driver hears from his boss and says, these pizzas need to go this place, he listens to the command of his supervisor. Now that's just pizza. But we're talking about Jesus here. We're talking about the gospel, right? He's commanded, go to all the nations and share the gospel, proclaim the gospel, make disciples of all nations. And so what do we do? We take that message and we deliver it to who it belongs to, 
which is all nations, all tribes, all peoples and languages. It belongs to them. We've got to share it with them. And so that should be a metaphor. There's 12 metaphors here that drive us. So once again, these are one of our motivations. But next, we're going to talk about uh, motivations for evangelism and specifically uh, from a, an exegetical example from the book of 2 Corinthians, and particularly chapters 4 and 5. So you can open your Bibles to there. That's where we'll be for pretty much the remainder of our time. But I want to say uh, a few words before we walk through 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, okay? So how do you motivate someone to share the gospel? That's a question I know I asked as I was preparing for this lesson. I, you know, I don't, I don't want to try and reinvent the wheel here. Um, it's, the Lord has done a good job with his word. Okay? It's, it's why, that's why I've tried to fill this with so much scripture so you can see these aren't Travis's ideas about evangelism, but this is God's idea about evangelism. I'm just presenting it to you and hoping that you'll internalize and meditate on these truths day and night and let it satisfy you and drive you. But how do you motivate someone to share the gospel? Right? Um, we often ask this question maybe in other, related to other things like, how do I motivate my spouse to fulfill their God-given role? How do I motivate my children toward respectful behavior or to do good in school? How do I motivate this coworker to do a better job? How do I motivate a church member to take seriously following Christ by killing their sin before it kills them? We always are thinking about motivations, right, and how we can help someone get from A to B. So, it, so this question of motivation, I would argue, is inextricably tied to our beliefs, and our behavior. It kind of weds these things together. And so let's talk about our motivating beliefs before we get to our motivating behavior. I want to get to that. So 2 Corinthians is where we'll find ourselves. So for, for point number one, I believe I kept the scripture, scripture references in there. So you can notice we start in 2 Corinthians 4, uh, verse 16. Verse 16. So someone go ahead and read 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 5, 8. So when we look at this passage, I really think this passage helps, and I, and we, I put it in summary here, um, which is from this, the outline from this chapter here, is an eternal perspective, an eternal perspective, right? It starts right at the beginning with looking at the big picture, and then it walks through essentially what we might call um, the, it, it's leading up to in the next couple of verses, the judgment seat of Christ, and looking at how do I look at my life? How do I look at my body? How do I look at my service, right? What does he say here? Our earthly home, our tent, you know, it's destroyed, but we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In this tent, in my body, we're going to groan and we're, we're longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. And, and back and forth, he's using this imagery of, 
you know, being naked but being clothed. And so what he's saying is, yes, we're suffering this light and momentary affliction, but there's something coming even greater. And that's his point. He's trying to direct the church of Corinth to see the big picture, to have an eternal perspective, which leads us to our next verse, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 9. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. And I think I had an error. Number 3 is supposed to say 2 Corinthians 5, 10. I don't know if it says it in your notes, but my, my notes, I wrote it wrong. But 2 Corinthians 5, 9, which is a deep desire, if, you want to, if you're taking notes, a deep desire to please God. Someone go ahead and read that. A deep desire to please God. You see that? So he's like, okay, whether we're at home or away, my aim, my goal, what I'm striving towards is to please him. Reminds us of 2 Timothy chapter 2, when he says, a, a soldier does not get entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. That's what a soldier does. That's what a soldier does. So the next, the next one, why, why? What's another motivation here? Well, not only our eternal perspective or a deep desire to please God, but 2 Corinthians 5.10, we know we will be judged. Look at verse 10. Now, maybe you're a new believer in this room or you're kind of confused of like, wait a second, I thought when I got saved, the penalty of sin was removed and I'm not going to be judged for my sin. That's true. You're not going to go before the great white throne judgment, which is a judgment you'll see in the book of Revelation uh, near the end there, where that's a, that's a judgment for unbelievers only. But this judgment seat of Christ, it's a different kind of judgment seat. And it's actually perfect timing, right? We have the Olympics happening, the Winter Olympics in, in China right now. And um, at the Olympics, they give out awards, right? The gold medal, silver medal, bronze medal, right? And someone, a judge will hand those out, right? They'll look at the competition, they'll weigh who did what and what their score is, right? Well, in the same way, this is that same language actually from ancient Greece. It's called the Bema seat, if you're trying to spell that, B-E-M-A, the Bema seat. And that was the seat back in the day when they did the Olympics then, where a judge would hand out rewards, and it'd be rewards uh, like a, a, a crown or a wreath that they'd wear on their head. And so, notice what Paul is saying. We must we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We're all going to stand before God as it relates to our rewards. Our rewards. This is not a judgment for unbelievers because they're not in Christ. And we might say they're not in the game, right? They're not competing for and with Christ. They're not even in the competition. So we see here, we are going to do that. We, every single one of us, if we're in Christ in this room, we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why? So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil whether good or evil. So we're accountable. We know we will be judged, so that's a motivation for us. Next, 2 Corinthians 5.11, we understand God's holiness. That's the next line. We understand God's holiness. So someone go ahead and read 2 Corinthians 5.11. So we see really clearly there the fear of the Lord. We understand God's holiness here. Next, we see love and concern for others. Someone go ahead and read 2 Corinthians 5, 12 to 13. We see love and concern for others. Notice what this text says. Someone read that.
So we see clearly it's a love and concern for others that is a motivator for, motivator for Paul here as he relates to um, his, those he's trying to serve. But also we see in the next one, number six, we see the love of Christ, the love of Christ. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now, someone go ahead and read 2 Corinthians 5.15, where we see, this is the next motivator here, the lordship of the resurrected Christ. The lordship of the resurrected Christ. Someone read verse 15. And he died for all, that those who, might, that those who live no longer, sorry, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So the lordship of the resurrected Christ was a motivator for them. Notice that we might no longer live for ourselves. That's the motivator here. So it's amazing how this text, I mean, and I'm so glad we preached, Lewis preached it this morning, but we're walking through it. We can see clearly, in the, and even in the overarching context, there's a ton of motivators here of why we're ambassadors for Christ, and really takes us, at the end of this passage, to the gospel. This beautiful picture of the Great Exchange. But let's get to a few more verses, and we'll get right there, and we'll talk about that. So the next one, verses 16 and 17, someone go ahead and read that. This is the fill-in-the-blank if you're um, someone about to have the guts to read besides Cameron here, okay? Number eight. Hope in a life that can be changed. There's hope, hope in a life that can be changed. That's a motivator. We hope lives can be changed because we are faithful to share the gospel. 16 and 17, he's got it. Right? So we hope to see lives changed, right? Isn't it amazing, even the baptisms this morning, celebrating for Laura and John to seeing their lives change and other baptisms we've had recently. And it's always such a joyful experience to hear those testimonies and see lives that are changed. And, and what, a, what a great thing to be a part of as the body of Christ. And even as we're serving in Upward and thinking of families who've been influenced through Upward or through Awana or through student ministry or any other ministry we have, it's just great to see that. And so we have hope in a life that can be changed. Number nine, number nine. God's amazing plan to let us be involved. Say it one more time and then someone read that. God's amazing plan to let us be involved. Look at how God involves us according to this text. Someone go ahead and read that. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, So, in the mystery of what God is doing, He lets us be involved. Yes, we understand the Holy Spirit regenerates unbelievers, He convicts unbelievers, but He uses us as His mouthpiece. What a blessing to be used by God. We get to be involved in this, which leads us to 2 Corinthians 5.21, which is the wonder of it all, the wonder of it all, Christ's sacrificial death. The wonder of it all, Christ's sacrificial death. Someone read 2 Corinthians 5.21. That is a powerful passage. If you don't have that one memorized, store that one away. Be reminded of the truth of this great exchange, that we are considered righteous. We are considered righteous because of what Christ has done, not because of what we've done. And this reminds me of a quote by G.K. Chesterton from over 100 years ago in his book, Orthodoxy. It's an excellent quote, and I want you to listen closely to this quote. 
because he's a little wordy, but it's a really good quote. The sun rises every morning. He's a little comedic too. He says, I don't rise every morning, but the variation is not due to my activity, but to my inaction. In other words, he stays in bed. Uh, now, to put the matter in a popular phrase, it might be true that the sun rises regularly because he never gets tired of rising. His routine might be due not to a lifelessness, but to a rush of life. The thing I mean can be seen, for instance, in children when they find some game or joke that they specially enjoy. A, co- a, sorry, a child kicks his legs rhythmically through, through excess, not absence, of life. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. And what's he saying? Adults easily get bored with life and find things monotonous, but God has created a world of beauty and wonder, and his gospel is one of beauty and wonder. And how often do we see things as monotonous and and get in this horrible routine of apathy and and just really not seeing the, the vitality we can actually receive from the living and active word of God? Has the truth of the gospel maybe heard daily or weekly or monthly or yearly Have you let that truth, the wonder of it, not just the fact that it's true and that it's good, but that it's beautiful, that it's wonderful, that it's glorious, that it's majestic, have you let that escape you? Don't let it escape you. Each one of us at some point in our life will let that happen because we're fallen, sinful human beings. But I want to encourage you, don't let it escape you. Don't let the wonder of the gospel escape you. So how do we go from these motivating beliefs, which we've talked about, to our work? You know, we believe X, so we should do Y. We believe the gospel is true, good, and beautiful, so we should go and share it, right? We don't want to solely focus on doctrine and not its application because that can lead to a weak faith, and some might argue no real faith. But we don't want to focus on actions at the absence of true biblical faith because that will lead to liberalism or some kind of thing where it's, you know, the Salvation Army, humanitarian aid with no gospel. So we have our doctrine, and we want to see devotion, but how do we get there? What's this bridge in the gap between doctrine and devotion. You know what it is? It's discipline. It's discipline. The bridge between doctrine and devotion is discipline. Okay? Now, some people get a little uneasy at that word because they like to say, oh no, it's legalism to be told to be disciplined. No, that's not true because go read the book of Proverbs. That's not legalism to be told to love discipline. To love discipline. Discipline is good for us. It's good for us. Legalism says, I earn my salvation by my good works. Discipline is correction and being corrected from going the wrong way or going off the straight and narrow path. So um, now we could spend a lot of time laying out habits and disciplines to have and use, but I'm not addressing those specific things today. We'll get actually to more practical application as the next two sessions come. Uh, but you're a smart human beings, so take these principles as we're talking about in these metaphors that we've talked about today and seek to use them and think about them and meditate on them, and you'll see your opportunity. Now, uh, I did want to read this long quote, but I'm running out of time here. But I will read a different quote that's a little shorter. So, um, this guy named Bill Smith, he's a pastor that I know. And he, 
he actually had posted this online on a blog, and I really liked it. And he, he's talking about discipline as a major thread in the book of Proverbs. And I just wanted to briefly talk about that real quick, because like I said, between doctrine and devotion is discipline. And so I, I want to thread that in here. Discipline is a major thread in Proverbs that begins in the introduction of the book and is then woven into the warp and woof of all the instruction. Solomon desires his son to know wisdom and discipline. It's in chapter 1. And to receive discipline in wise dealing. The fool, he says, despises wisdom and discipline. Our translations render this Hebrew word instruction throughout Proverbs with a few exceptions. And that's a good translation, but in many of our ears, instruction connotes more of the conveyance of information. But the Hebrew word speaks of a chastening lesson. This is instruction, but it's not limited to oral teaching. It comes through the rod applied by authorities, general pain, mental toughness, that is determined to do one thing and not another. So discipline is an alternative and better, and I would just add maybe complementary rendering of the word instruction, I believe. So this idea of discipline is training that aims to produce a specific character that will cause you to fulfill your purpose and enjoy rewards. So discipline, what does it do? It subdues, it corrects, and directs passions toward long-term goals, willing to endure pain and short-term deprivation when necessary. Discipline is the way of wisdom. Discipline is wisdom's path. Discipline is the guardrails that keep you in the way and the signposts that give you direction. Discipline is the drive that keeps you on the path, developing skills and doing the temporarily unpleasant things because of the long-term reward. Discipline encourages you when you are weary. Discipline rebukes you when you try to turn to the right or the left or, to lie, or simply lie down. Discipline moves you when you are unmotivated. That is, when you're just not feeling like doing whatever it is you need to do. Discipline is tough-minded, overcoming pain, fear, sloth, apathy, criticism, hurt feelings, disagreements, and wanting to give up. Discipline is wisdom's eyes that keep you focused on the prize, wisdom's hand that guides you, wisdom's foot that kicks you when you need it, and wisdom's heart that moves by your deepest desires. And so my encouragement to you guys, as you're thinking about evangelism, that is a good devotion to have in your life, to be in the regular habit of sharing your faith. But we can get all this doctrine and be in church every Sunday and go to life group and go to D group and go, and go on Wednesday night and be involved in serving in the church. And those are all wonderful things. But you're never going to evangelize if you don't just discipline yourself to do it. And that's a fact. And that's a fact. We all have to do it. We have to have these conversations. And sometimes an evangelistic conversation might just be starting to talk about what church does that person go to and and having a bit of small talk about it. And sometimes it might be, I'm going to sit down with you and we're going to walk through the entire gospel and I'm going to ask you, do you believe this? there's There's a range of gospel opportunities that you can take. And so... In closing, real quick, we only have about four minutes till we have to be done to move on to other things. So maybe two minutes. Anyone got a, a question or a prayer request of evangelistic opportunity? Question or prayer request? We can do both. Yes? Reconciling, what's that number 10 on motivations? Oh, just reconciling. That's it, the word reconciling. Yeah, sorry. Okay, any, any um, questions? It's pretty straightforward today. We're going to get into a little bit, little bit more as it relates to evangelizing our culture in our next session. Um, does anyone have any prayer requests before we go? Because we want, do want to be praying for people we're sharing the gospel with. Nikki? Uh, there's a man at work. Okay. He's trying to 
Yeah. Okay, that's awesome, man. Glad to hear you're sharing your faith at work, man. That's great. Anyone else? Any other prayer requests? More opportunities you've had to evangelize that we could be praying for? Oh, Elijah, I'm sorry, man. Go ahead. Absolutely, Elijah. We'd be glad to do that. That's encouraging to hear you being bold to share the gospel with your family, man. Thank you for sharing that with us. Anyone else? Okay. That's awesome, man. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, too. That's great. Absolutely. All right. Well, it's 4.58, so let me close this in a word of prayer, and I'll pray for these specific people and then for all of us as we go. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time to be able to be together to study what your word says about evangelism, and we're grateful uh, for your work and and really the good news. We're grateful for the gospel. And as um, we go from here, help us to be bold in sharing our faith, to see the opportunities around us and take advantage of them. Uh, Lord, we just pray for Nikki as he's sharing the gospel at work and the other Woodlawn kids who are at work around the same person he works with. We pray that all of them will be bold to share their faith uh, there at work with those who are confused, especially this person Nikki was bringing up. But also we pray for Elijah and sharing the gospel with his father, which I know must be intimidating. Uh, but Lord, we just pray that you continue to give him boldness and clarity of mind as he presents your word to his own father. And we also just pray for Nathan as he meets with Sam Parsons, uh, an old friend and, and a former attender here at Woodlawn. We pray that God, you would work in Sam's life through Nathan and, and, and through this, this helpful tool uh, of the book, What is the Gospel? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.